News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. It has been three days of protest in Ottawa, and we're not just talking about Parliament Hill here. We are talking the city of Ottawa, which is something that hasn't gotten a lot of attention during the coverage of what's going on in Ottawa right now. So for more on that, we're joined by Mercedes Stevenson, our Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief. Hi, Mercedes. Hi, Simi. How are you today? What's going on in your neighborhood? (laughs) Well, I'm a little sick of horns, to be honest. Um, I live in the downtown of Ottawa, and um, as you were just saying there, I think a lot of folks think the protest is limited to Parliament Hill. It's not. It's actually uh, almost all of the main north south entrances into the downtown and going up to Parliament Hill. Uh, I'm several blocks away from Parliament Hill and for three days I've had semis and trucks parked outside my home blaring their horns 24 hours, not 24 hours a day, it feels like 24 hours a day. They've been observing the noise bylaws to me so they do um, you know abide by the rules but I can tell you talking to my neighbors and people in the neighborhood, there's a very high level of frustration. There's a lot of empathy for the frustration people feel with COVID measures and that everyone just wants this to be over. Um, but one of my neighbors said to me, did they know the prime minister doesn't actually live here? <laughs> like he's right. out at Harrington Lake and we're downtown. Um, and it's really created a lot of issues in terms of you can't drive into or out of the downtown core very well. It could take you an hour uh, to make it a couple of blocks because all of these main drags are just basically closed down. This morning, I'm looking out my window, and I can see um, many semis that are parked, and many of them appear to be off. Their engine is not idling. They are parked in the street. Um, There is now one lane open. There was none. I watched an ambulance get a police escort to go down a side street because it couldn't come down Kent, uh, which is one of the main drags here in Ottawa that I could see from my window. It was trying to make its way down. Um, So certainly there's a lot of frustration from the Ottawa population who understand the frustration of the protesters, but also feel like this is actually grinding the city to a halt for folks who don't work in politics too. And I mean, you know, you live in Ottawa, so you've seen lots of protests before. It's a regular part of life, but it sounds like nothing quite like this one. No, nothing like this one. I've never seen a protest um, scramble traffic this badly, which I'm sure for the organizers, they would see that as a sign of success, right? Because right. when you protest, you want to be heard, you want to draw attention, you want to force people to look at what's happening. Um, but I've never seen it go on for this long. Uh, Ottawa protests are typically very Canadian. You register for a police route with the city and the police actually make sure you don't get hit by cars and shut down the streets and you march at your appointed time and then it's over. Um, obviously, this is not what these protesters wanted. They wanted something that would draw a lot more attention and that was more disruptive in order to do that. But we're now going into the fourth day of this. So there's increasing questions about when the city of Ottawa is going to start to clear the streets. And it's interesting because there's been a real rolling sense with the protesters and depending on who you talk to in the protest, what the goals are. Some say it's the vaccine mandates for truckers. That falls at Justin Trudeau's feet. But the uh, folks who are talking about COVID measures, those are provincial and the federal government has no control. And then there's the people who are sort of the furthest, like Patrick King, uh, one of the organizers with an, a past history tied to far right organizations. He says they're not leaving, leaving until the liberal government is out of power. 
Um, that's very different than lifting the vaccine mandate where this started. So there's sort of a question about where people are. I think most of the folks who showed up on the weekend, it's just a general sense of frustration. Right. Frankly, it was a chance to get out and see other people and socialize. People were dancing in the streets. It was a very peaceful, joyful, almost atmosphere at some times. But there was also anger underneath. We saw a Nazi flag. We saw yes. Confederate flags. We saw statues being desecrated. Um, and, and just sort of the continual blaring of horns and revving of engines. Um, that was disconcerting for a lot of the folks who live downtown. Okay, so what does this mean, though, for the work of the House of Commons? Because I understand they're getting back to work today. Yeah, I mean, you're certainly not driving to work or getting a ride in if you're a minister uh, because the streets are almost impassable. There's some emergency routes that have been left open uh, to try to make sure that we don't have the situation I saw this morning where all three lanes were blocked and, and people couldn't get through. Um, but it is virtual parliament, so people can attend no matter what. I imagine some conservative MPs who were out over the weekend might want to go back up there in person and, you know, cross the protest and talk to people. Others might feel very uncomfortable going in physically after the sergeant at arms put out a warning last week. He's the person in charge of security for the House of Commons, saying that the protesters, some of the protesters, had threatened to find MPs' addresses and show out and pro show up to protest their homes. Um, so I, I think that there'll be a wide variance in people who want to come in. The question will be whether you can actually make it in, even if you are in Ottawa. Right. And there were, as you pointed out, a number of Conservative MPs who, you know, showed up there on Saturday. And would you think there will be any black backlash for that, Mercedes, given the things that you were also there? You talked about the far right rhetoric, the Nazi flags, the Confederate flags. Will there be any backlash for that? Well, that's the risk, right? Um, there's certainly conservatives who I've spoken to who say they are worried that these MPs are catering to a very small percentage of the Canadian population at the expense of a far larger percentage who will be turned off by this. And that the votes that they will gain that might go otherwise to, say, Maxime Bernier's People's Party of Canada, he was up there speaking too, would not be enough to win elections anyhow, and therefore it's a risk to associate yourself. Obviously, some of these MPs don't believe that or they sympathize with the protesters and they've decided to go out there. Aaron O'Toole met with them as well, something a lot of folks raised an eyebrow about. His office won't tell us who he actually met with or what was said. So we don't know, was it, hmm. um, you know, one of the truckers who was trying to get across the border and is just frustrated? Was it an organizer? Who among the organizers? We just don't have any of that information because they wouldn't tell us when or where the meeting was taking place, and they haven't really disclosed anything about it since. So is this about the city of Ottawa now in terms of, like, what happens with these protesters or moving them along? Is it is it all at the feet of the Ottawa city now? It is, and, and that's because um, the Parliamentary Protective Service, which handles security for Parliament Hill, their authority stops as soon as you get to the street in front of Parliament Hill. That is the Ottawa police's jurisdiction, and so are all of the streets. Uh, the mayor of Ottawa has said he wants these protesters out, that it's grinding the city to a halt, and that it's a huge problem. Uh, but so far, we haven't seen the city really exercise any powers to get rid of people. For the first time last night, they started towing illegally parked vehicles. The first time in three days. Um, but obviously there's going to be sort of only so many tow trucks. Uh, so the question will be how the police deal with this and, and whether they can try to contain the protest maybe to a smaller area, like just in front of Parliament Hill. Uh, often police will try to negotiate something like that with protesters, but we've just never seen anything like this before in Ottawa. Certainly sounds like it. Mercedes, thank you. Thank you. It's Mercedes Stevenson, our Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief. There'll be a lot of, I think, watching today to see what happens. It is with the city of Ottawa now, as Mercedes pointed out. There's more to come on. This is Mornings with Simi.
All right, let's talk about what's going on out there today. As you just heard in the news, Prime Minister Trudeau has said that he has tested positive for COVID-19. I guess one of his children had tested positive, so he'd been isolating. His test has also now come back positive. He is also expected to address the public and everyone in about an hour's time or so. I think 8.15 is the schedule for that. We'll have it for you. Uh, This is the first time we will have heard from him since the protests certainly started, not just the ones in Ottawa, but we've protests right across the country over the weekend. So we'll hear what he has to say about that. So that's coming up in about an hour's time. Also, we're following the story in the UK. Boy, it's like a soap opera what is going on there right now. And the report there's a report that has come out this morning from a person named Sue Gray, who was tasked with trying to figure out what had been going on with the Prime Minister and his aides. And essentially, the report comes back and says that Downing Street suffers from a culture of, quote, excessive workplace drinking that led to social gatherings during the pandemic lockdowns. And we're talking quite a few gatherings. So in directly flouting the laws that the people had put in place, these are the people who had actually helped the government put these rules in place, and they themselves were flouting it, including the prime minister. That's just breaking this morning. Boris Johnson expected to address Parliament in the UK coming up in about half an hour or so. So yes, there's a lot going on to follow. Now, when it comes to something like COVID-19, we don't want to be caught off guard again with a virus like that. But how do we make sure that doesn't happen? Researchers around the world are working on this very issue. They do it by studying coronaviruses to map them and try to understand how they work. And as they do that, they are finding out that there are way more RNA viruses and coronaviruses than they realize. In fact, researchers at UBC discovered nine new species of coronaviruses alone. How did they do this? And what do you do with that information? Well, joining us now is Dr. Artem Babayan, who's the Banting postdoctoral researcher at the University of Cambridge, did this research while he was still in Vancouver. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Yeah, thank you for inviting me, Simi. It's a pleasure. Well, I'd love to hear more about this. First of all, what do we what do we gain by mapping viruses like this? What is it? How does it help us in the future? Well, it's important that we have this information, right? Because we we want to know what exists in nature, so that as you mentioned, we're not caught off guard. We have to survey our environments and understand how not just humans, but also our crops, our livestock, and endangered species, how do they interact with all the plethora of viruses that exist? And so that was kind of the the idea with this project, was to kind of create a map of where RNA viruses exist all across the world and how they interact with different species. I understand there were some pretty surprising results when it came to RNA viruses, like we're talking tens of thousands more than we realized. Yeah, that's right. So you know, it maybe is not so uh, surprising. It's been known or like kind of speculated, you could say, for a very long time that the amount of viruses that exist in nature is an enormous number, something like a trillion. Because if you think about it, you know, there are all these viruses that say infect humans that we know of and pay attention to. But if you think of all the different species that exist, all the different types of insects, all the different plants in the Amazon, they all have their own constellation of viruses. Right. So um, there's a huge kind of biology and it almost is like an impossibly big problem to try to tackle. And as the pandemic kind of 
rolled in. You know, we, we as researchers thought we should do our part and try to help the world understand uh, how this occurred. And so we decided, okay, let's, let's try to create a map of all of these viruses. Okay, that's a nice idea, but how do you do that? How do you even start to do that? Well, um, you know, it's also a, a pretty, it's a pretty simple question, right? Like, where are all the viruses in the world? Show me. Um, so a little bit of backstory on this is um, there's a central database. It's called the Sequence Read Archive. And all the biologists in the world, whenever they do any type of genetics analysis and they generate sequencing data, they deposit it into the Sequence Read Archive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can almost think of this as like a giant library of Alexandria for genetics. Now, this database has been growing very, very quickly. It's actually growing faster than the growth of computing power, which is commonly called Moore's Law, right? So our ability to kind of analyze that much data is essentially it was impossible. It was like completely inaccessible. Then by pure luck, uh, NIH, which is the uh, National Institute of Health in America, started this infrastructure program called Strides, and they decided to copy all of this data, which is uh, over 40 million gigabytes of data, onto cloud platforms, right? So that's like uh, Amazon Web Services. And that gave us an unprecedented, unprecedented amount of access to this data. And so me and, you know, literally my climbing partner, we, uh, we were just kind of you know, watching the news and we we're thinking, what can we do to help? And we decided, how about we just try to reanalyze all this data and build an infrastructure that can do that? And um, so then we approached a, the Cloud Innovation Center, which is at the University of British Columbia. And they helped kind of facilitate this with AWS, helped us connect with their engineers. And eventually we built probably the world's most powerful sequence analysis um, you can say like supercomputer hmm. to, to do this. And so we analyzed in total 5.7 million biological samples ranging from every corner of the world. That is fascinating. And you mentioned you also found nine new coronaviruses. What does that mean? Right. So just uh, to be clear, there's no worry about these coronaviruses infecting humans. Um, you know, this is we were studying kind of coronaviruses from a very biological standpoint. Obviously, if we found any coronaviruses that could infect humans, that would show up in our screen, but there was nothing that was kind of like a smoking gun or a warning for everyone. The coronaviruses that we found infect aquatic vertebrates. So that's uh, an axolotl, which is like this little amphibian with the gills outside of its neck, Um, seahorses, fugu fish, catfish, and eels, right? So this isn't normally where you think that you would go looking for coronaviruses. But because we were doing this kind of global survey, you see exactly what you don't expect to see. And that was kind of the point of this project was, let's have a unbiased analysis of the world's collection of viruses. Right. And so, yeah. So what happens now then? What do you do with this information? Um. So, you know, this, this information is actually really useful, and there's a lot of things that, you know, maybe were a little bit unexpected, but maybe not really. Um, the way to think about this is, you know, think about this database. Every biologist in the world is out there sampling the world, right? Like, you're talking ice core samples in the Arctic. There are people swabbing, like, the anus of a tropical bird in the Amazon, right? And all of this data is centralized. 
So what we can actually do is convert all of this data into a giant virus surveillance network. And the idea being that if viruses that are new or sometimes even viruses that are completely novel and have never been seen before show up, we know where they are. And the way that you can think of this as actually being applied is there's a new generation of sequencing technologies being developed mm -hmm. uh, for diagnostics, right? And when a patient shows up with a fever of unknown origin, right, you can analyze, if you get sequencing from that blood, it'll take about two minutes and cost half a cent to use the database and then connect that patient, say, Nanaimo, to a sample from a camel in sub-Saharan Africa sampled in 2012. So we're building this kind of interconnection to make sure that physicians, epidemiologists are, are right. interconnected with like the world's viruses. That is so cool. Uh, Dr. Debayan, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much for having me. It's been this is Mornings with Simi. How do we make sure our museums reflect all of our history? That is one of the challenges facing the Royal BC Museum right now. And Melanie Mark, who's BC's Minister of Tourism, Arts, Culture and Sport, thinks it's time that we need to give it a new state-of-the-art home. She joins us now to talk about why. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, good morning, Simi. Now, the Royal BC Museum has certainly, there's been a lot of discussion about this, right? The last little while. Why do you think it needs a new home? Well, we've known for quite a while uh, that it needs a new home. Um, in fact, in 2010, there was a report indicating that there was seismic risk uh, to the building. Uh, Premier John Horgan mandated former Minister Lisa Baer and myself to uh, continue on with work to redevelop the museum, um, not only because of the seismic risk, but also because we have to reimagine um, what a new museum could look like in the 21st century and refl better reflect uh, the stories of British Columbians and our history, our shared history of how we built this province, who built this province, where we built this province. And so it's a really exciting opportunity um, to just reimagine building a, a new facility that, that's going to be an excellent inheritance for future generations. You know, there were people who were upset that the Royal BC Museum was changing or removing, you know, exhibits that they had had in the past. What do you think about that? Well, I, I think for for some people, I think change is hard. And I think for others, uh, people would say that the change hasn't come soon enough. And so there, there are varying opinions about uh, change. But maybe I can just illustrate for your listeners. The facility spans two hectares. It's got 7 million archives. It, it's spanning over 27 kilometers. Our entire history is behind the walls of five buildings. And we need to better reflect uh, that history. We have to curate that history. It's time to reimagine what the exhibits look like. And so I recognize that change can be difficult for individuals. But in the 21st century, we also have to think about technology and, and digitizing our, our archives so that communities beyond the greater capital region or people that don't have access to come to Victoria can also participate uh, in the exhibit. So that's something that's very exciting to me. Uh, mm -hmm. my, my family's up north, uh, you know, in northern BC. Some of those kids can't make it on a school trip to the museum. And so I think it's incumbent on us to uh, use technology 
to share those stories. That sounds like a very big job. So how do we undertake that? When does all this work begin? Oh, yes, I have a big job. Thanks for <laughs> acknowledging that, um, Simi. There's a lot going on. And uh, right before us, uh, government has a business case. Uh, we're reviewing uh, the scope uh, of that business case. And I'll be sharing more details as soon as uh, government has made any decisions. Uh, but in the meantime, I, I know that the staff are working really hard to digitize, for example, the third floor so that we can share those exhibits uh, with community the staff are working around the clock to um, clean and catalog and, and curate uh, the third floor exhibit because those exhibits haven't had the TLC that they deserve uh, for a few decades. And so there's a lot going on, but I think it's an exciting opportunity for us to think about what the engagement's going to look like. Mm -hmm. um, as minister, it's important that I hear from people about what a reimagined museum is going to look like for not just Indigenous people, I'm Indigenous, but there are other um, cultural groups in this province that have said to me unequivocally that their stories have not been shared in a respectful and thoughtful way. And so I, I think there's a lot of work to do, uh, no doubt, but as Minister, I want to be as transparent with the public as possible because we can't risk. Um, we can't risk taking any more delays. We have to move forward. Listen, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. Thank you, Simi. Have a great day. You too. That's Melanie Mark, Minister of Tourism, Art, Culture and Sport, talking about a reimagined Royal BC Museum. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's talk about something fun, shall we? Like celebrating the new year, the Lunar New Year and the Year of the Tiger. Officially, it is tomorrow, but there's so many great ways that you can participate in this too, along with my favorite, which is through food. Joining us now to talk more about this is Christy Hang, food journalist and TV host. Good morning, Christy. Good morning. Happy Lunar New Year. And the same to you. Now, I was doing this at home over the weekend because I love participating in, in any event having to do with food, as people who know me do. So I was making dumplings. Is that a good thing to make for Lunar New Year? Of course. How auspicious and lucky to start up a new year with some delicious dumplings. They're in the shape of coins back in the day from China. So it's considered a very lucky and fortuitous way to start up a new year. Okay, because there are certain types of food that are like definitely consumed this time of year to mark the Lunar New Year, right? Absolutely. So we have long noodles for longevity. Um, there are togetherness trays, which are, there's a bunch of different things inside of it, like dried watermelon seeds, candied lotus roots, coconut shreds. All these symbolize growth and good health and citruses are great to symbolize prosperity. The, the list goes on and on with nearly, you know, 2 billion people all over the world celebrating this holiday. Yeah, let's talk about that because this is not just, we used to call this Chinese New Year. We don't, we call it Lunar New Year now. Is there more of a recognition that this is celebrated in many countries, not just China? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's definitely more correct to call it Lunar New Year. There are so many people that celebrate it from Mongolia, Burma, Thailand, Singapore, Hong Kong, Korea, uh, Vietnam. So it definitely is not just China, uh, but every every culture and ethnicity, something that ties them together is the love of food and starting the new year off right. Okay, so I guess depending on where you're from, it would depend on how you celebrate? It kind of depends on where you're from, but I think even more so uh, what language you speak, because even between Mandarin 
Taiwanese and Cantonese, sometimes it's based on how a food sounds is what makes it lucky because a lot of things are homophones for each other. Oh, this is so interesting. Like what? Um, for example, um, one of the dishes is turnip cake. And in Taiwanese, uh, the local dialect is Tai Tao Gui, which means uh, kind of fortune and bring in the money. And so if you were to say that in Mandarin, which is Lobogao, or Cantonese Lobogao, that doesn't have the same ring to it. So that's why it's not necessarily lucky in different cultures or different types of ethnicities to eat that dish. But for local Taiwanese, that might be their go-to dish for Lunar New Year. Okay, this I'm really interested in all this. It would be because I was reading an article as well about how in Singapore, Lunar New Year is so big and they have dishes that you look at that and you think, well, some of these are Indonesian in style, but then Singapore does have a, a real mix, doesn't it? I mean, Singapore is just a mix of all these different ethnicities. They have a dish called lohe, which is really hard to find. Um, it's Cantonese in background, but Singapore and Malaysia made that dish very, very popular. And I just love the meaning behind the dish. So they have kind of a hodgepodge of everything, right? They have sashimi inside. They have lotus fruit. It's a really good salad with peanuts and pomelo, uh, sesame seeds, white radish, and crackers and carrots. And the whole point is everyone gets around the table, they put in their chopsticks, and they mix it as high as possible. They are, they're tossing the salad as high as possible. And during this whole time, they're screaming out good luck, you know, greetings to one another. I'm wishing you a great fortune this year. I'm wishing you good health. And it's, it's just a hilarious game. And it's such a great <laughs> way to start off the holiday. I'm just like picturing it. And it sounds like so much fun. Uh, but I guess some of this like we can't do right now, though, can we? Um, some of the things aren't really safe to do right now. And I think with the restaurant industry, some places are making the dishes. So we, we are a little bit limited. But I think for the most part, there's at least one or two dishes you can definitely get. You can at least go to the market and get yourself some pomelo, some citruses like mandarin oranges to kind of, you know, start the new year off right. I've seen that. I've noticed that actually at all the grocery stores, how citrus is front and center right now. So Christy, how are you celebrating? What's going to happen at your house? So my house, we're, uh, we've definitely been staying home, but we are doing something called the lohe, which I mentioned earlier is the Singaporean, Malaysian, Cantonese dish where we're going to be tossing up good fortune in that salad. And it's just going to be my mom and I, a little bit boring, but us two, we're going to have some dumplings. We're going to have some gluttonous rice cakes, gluttonous rice balls, and, um, and a togetherness tray, which has six to eight compartments in there. You know, eight is a very lucky number for Chinese. And we're going to have some dried water watermelon seeds, some candy coconut, um, pineapple, which is lucky as well, some pistachios, which actually means happy nuts. So you want to start the new year off right on a happy note. So start it with something sweet. Yeah, let's talk about that then. So what does it mean for the new year? Like obviously eating all these different types of food mean you want a good fortune, you want to represent, like how did all that come about? Is it all about good fortune for the year ahead? You know, I think the, the holiday itself is based on the agriculture calendar. So back then, you really wanted to um, pray to the gods and make sure your harvest was, was right and was plentiful. So I think it's kind of changed over the years, but all these different cultures are basically just wanting to start the new year off right. We've had a, a few uh, years lately that weren't so great. So we'll take any good luck we can get. We will try anything. Oh, that sounds like so much fun. Okay, so this is going on everywhere. How would you recommend, Christy, like if somebody is new to this, they think this looks good, I want to participate somehow, where should we start? Um, I think go to your local Asian market. There's always going to be some products that 
um, local mom and pops make and they'll bring over to the local Asian market. So definitely go there. I know some people live in places that aren't so accessible. So maybe get yourself some citruses from your backyard or anything. Um, have some noodles, even if they're frozen. Have some dumplings. Um, I know Koreans love eating rice cake for them. It's their birthday every year. So uh, the kids love eating a bowl of rice cakes, Korean rice cakes, because they think they're getting one year older. So <laughs> there's always something, whether it's fruit, whether it's noodles, whether it's dumplings, and just have a good attitude. You know, the, the, the best is yet to come. Oh, I love this. Okay, so much fun. Christy, thank you for telling us about it this morning. Thank you for having me. That is Christy Hang, TV host and journalist covering food, travel, and Asian culture. As you heard, they should a great job of explaining all that. She is at Christy Hang on Twitter and Instagram if you'd like to check her out. Lunar New Year is officially tomorrow. It's the year of the tiger. And listen, the best to me, the best way to get to know other cultures, new cultures is through food, right? It is universal. We all love that. So if you get a chance, try some of those things that Christy was talking about there. I did make some dumplings this weekend. Great recipe. Loved it. Worked out wonderful. And you know what? I'm definitely going to participate a little bit more this week because that just means good things to eat. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, not every child has the chance to attend a summer camp, particularly not one where you learn about salmon and grizzly bears. But thanks to some great partnerships, Indigenous children in the Nishka Nation are getting the chance to do that. To learn more about this program, Dr. Andrea Reed joins us now, an assistant professor with the Institute for Oceans and Fisheries at UBC. Dr. Reed, thank you for being here. Good morning. My pleasure to be here. I love this. I understand these camps have been going on for a couple of years. Yeah, they have. Um, I started them during my PhD back in 2016. I was invited by the Niska Nation that I belong to to come up and, and lead these camps with youth. And so that's how they got their start. Right. But now you've got even more going on. So what's happening? <laughs> yeah, well, these camps are some of my favorite things that, that I do each year. And um, we fortunately have been able to get some good funding to support growing these camps in the years ahead. So really excited about where this is going to lead. Now, I know, Dr. Reed, that this is a beautiful area. I've been up there myself in the last couple of years. It is extraordinary. What do the kids get to see? Hmm, that's such a good question. Um, these camps are really meant to get youth out into the territory, into parts of the territory that are hard to access hard to see, hard to care about. And so we charter boats and buses and we go basically everywhere the salmon go. We're out on the ocean watching whales. We go up creeks to see grizzlies feeding on, on salmon. We go to spawning grounds to see them hard at work. And it's really meant to get the youth to see the beauty in the place that they and we live. We can spend so much time, you know, even in our own neighborhoods in, in Vancouver, you might pass a tree or a park or something that you see every day, but don't stop to think about it. And for them, it's the same. Even if it's exquisite mountains and, and beautiful ocean, it fades into the background. And so these camps are this great invitation to stop and think about what's around us and why it matters. And it's, that's one of my favorite parts is seeing the awe in, in their eyes when, when we get to show it to them the way that we see it. I'll bet. So what kind of an impact has this had on kids? What kind of a difference has it made? Hmm. It's been, it's just been really fun. It's been so great to connect youth of all ages. We open the doors to 
to everyone to join us. So it can range from four to 17 years old. That's another favorite part of mine is seeing the older kids helping the younger kids through the different activities that we're, that we're doing. Um, I think one of the big impacts is it gives them something to be excited about and to look forward to. And, you know, we do this each summer and, you know, you've been up there. It's a really uh, remote corner of this province and it's hard to get to. So opportunities like this to learn firsthand from scientists and to go out and do these really exciting things that can be hard to access. They don't come around that often until we've been able to set these up. I feel like adults could benefit from this too, <laughs> because having been up there, and I, I've said this to so many people I know, is that you you want you don't appreciate how incredibly beautiful, how much history there is up there until you're there and and immersed in it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and I think that's true of anywhere. We need to spend time in the places we are in order to care about them, and I think. Youth in, in my nation, just like youth everywhere, are, you know, on devices and, and hanging out and doing what they normally do wherever they are. And this is just this great invitation to put those things aside and just really spend time outdoors. And we, we go and we meet grizzly bear rangers and miscasish and wildlife technicians. And we spend time with elders and they get to see all of these different kind of paths that they might go down. And right. Yeah, for us, it's really about that, like, opening those doors. I feel like we need more of this, like, not just in the Nishka Nation. Mm, that's what we're hoping for. We're really uh, we're really hoping that through the expansion that we're going to be able to undertake in the years ahead, that we can create exchanges with youth and other nations. Um, the way that, you know, salmon behave in different places um, is really distinct, and, and salmon look really different across different rivers and, and across different parts of rivers. And so the way that different cultures prepare salmon and fish for salmon is also really different. And so we're, we're thinking about some pathways to get, for instance, Tilkotin youth up to the Niska Nation and bring Niska youth over to the Tilkotin to, to learn from one another. Oh, great stuff. Dr. Reed, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. Take care. You too. That's Dr. Andrea Reed, an assistant professor with the Institute for Oceans and Fisheries at UBC. Talking about this great program, she started this when she was a PhD student. And it, what it does is it helps Nishki youth they get on boats, they go out in the water, they learn about salmon, they learn about grizzly bears. And these are great summer camps uh, that are being run in cooperation with the Nishka Nation and UBC. And I don't know if you've been up here before, up there before. I don't know if you've heard me talk about it before, but I cannot stress enough how amazing it is to go up there, see the lava fields in person, just to see everything in person up there. It is an extraordinary part of BC, and I certainly hope that people can get up there and check it out for themselves. Oh, well, you know what? We all need to go somewhere new, right? Put that on your list. Put that on your list of places to go. Uh, Definitely. Maybe even this summer. I don't think you would be disappointed. This is Mornings with Simi. Just a reminder, then, the Ironworkers Memorial Bridge has been cleared of the protesters and the traffic situation, although they're still back up there. But now there seems to be some protesters over in the Horseshoe Bay area. So 
Watch out for that in the West Vancouver portion of Highway 1 this morning. It is a bit messy. We'll have your updates for you. Also, we are going to hear from the Prime Minister coming up after just around 9 o'clock this morning. He was supposed to speak at 8.15. That's been moved to 9. And we're wondering, you know, what he's going to say, because it'll be the first time that we have heard from him since the protesters and the truckers and the convoy moved into Ottawa starting on Friday. There's been a lot of interest in, well, what is he going to say about it? We will find out. Now, there's been debate about this right across the country because we saw protests and convoys in other cities as well, peaceful ones. We talked to Vaughn Palmer about that earlier. But in Ottawa, that hasn't always been the case with what we have seen there. There has been disturbing imagery. And I think if you believe in the good parts of the convoy and the protest, you're upset that there's been so much focus on the negative aspects. But really, what are people supposed to do? You see somebody walking with a Nazi flag. Yeah, that's upsetting. A Confederate flag. That is upsetting. You see people hanging things off a statue of Terry Fox. That is upsetting. And it was certainly upsetting uh, to the mayor of Port Coquitlam, which is Terry Fox's hometown. Brad West joins us now to talk more about this. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Simi. What did you think when you saw what was going on? I just thought it was profoundly disappointing, you know, for Porco Quitlam, and I know millions of Canadians across our country, uh, Terry Fox uh, is such an important figure uh, in our community. He is so woven into the, the fabric uh, of our city, uh, and we really revere him. And to see uh, his statue used to make a political statement, I, I think it's just so offside. Uh, and then, obviously, as we learned more about uh, uh, the disrespect that was uh, shown at the war memorial as well, um, really, really uh, disappointing, really, really, I think, upsetting for uh, a lot of Canadians. You know, we can disagree on um, political issues, but you would hope that there were some things that we we all agreed to. And, you know, the fact that uh, you know, Terry Fox and, and the war memorial be off limits, uh, you think would be one of those things. You would think. Do you think that's what kind of galvanized people? There's a lot that I think people in general would have said, well, this is a protest. Yes, you know, that's what we do. We protest. That's fine. But these two examples that you just cited there, they seem to have galvanized a lot of people. Yeah, I think they hit a nerve with folks for sure. Um, and again, you know, I think certainly speaking for myself, uh, I respect people's right to gather, uh, to express their opinions, uh, to do that, you know, loudly, uh, to call attention to their issues. I mean, that, that's the very essence of our democracy, uh, and, and we should protect that. Um, but there's also some things that I think are are off limits, and and when you start to use a statue of uh, someone like Terry Fox to make a political statement, uh, and when you show disrespect to the war memorial and the tomb of the unknown soldier, uh, I think you really have crossed a line. And I think that you know, for a lot of people who you know otherwise would maybe even support. Uh, some of the things that the protesters are are calling attention to, uh, that's something that they just can't tolerate, seeing those types of actions. And, and I've heard the comments, well, it's not everyone. And, and yeah, I think mm-hmm. that's right. It's not everyone. Uh, but it, it did happen. 
uh, and it deserves uh, to be discussed and called out in the way that it is being done. I know I've, I've heard a lot of those. And I've gotten a lot of those comments this morning too. And I just wonder like if this had been any other protest, the same thing would have happened. I, I assume, right. But if, if we had seen these kinds of actions, uh, people would have reacted. It was, it was a very, felt like a very kind of viral thing that happened. Uh, absolutely. Like, I don't think it matters what the, the political cause is or what the, the issue that's being protested. And, uh, you know, to me, I've had a lot of those messages as well. And, you know, we have to get to a place where people can understand that, you know, you can support a certain cause and still believe that some things are wrong. And so if you want to support this cause, that's fine. You can do that and still believe that it was wrong to use Terry Fox's statute, was wrong to be so disrespectful to the war memorial. It's not an either-or, and it's not about making excuses uh, just because, you know, you you don't like the fact that this has cast your your cause in a negative light. Uh, It really doesn't, to me... At the end of the day, it, it doesn't matter what the, the protest is about or, or what the political statement you're trying to make is. Terry Fox is off limits. Terry Fox is above politics, and he should just be left out of it. You know, I, I think most people would agree with that. Yeah, Port Coquitlam, of course, is his hometown. Um, it's very important that way. What have you heard from people in Port Coquitlam about this? I, I think this hits people in Port Coquitlam um, in in a very visceral way, um, I've heard a lot of people, you know, quite upset about it, um, but also a, a bit of a movement to try and channel uh, people's, you know, uh, either anger or disappointment. Uh, some people really sad, just think that this happening has crossed the line that they didn't think would happen, um, but trying to channel that into something positive. So, I mean, one of the things I've encouraged people to do is make a Make a contribution, if you're able to, to the Terry Fox Foundation. Terry Fox Foundation has raised over $850 million towards cancer research to carry on Terry's legacy and, and his dream of finding a cure for cancer. And so, you know, if you have a strong feeling about it, and I know lots of people in Poco do, you know, maybe try and channel it into something positive like that. I've heard this, too, and I understand that donations are up as a result. So that's something good. That is something good. Um, you know, again, from my perspective, I, I guess what what upset me the most about this is, you know, I think about the Terry Fox run, and every year millions of Canadians and actually millions of people around the world come together, and they come together from different, you know, political backgrounds, uh, uh, racial and ethnic backgrounds, uh, different ages, different walks of life, all sorts of different people come together to run the Terry Fox run, to carry on the Marathon of Hope. And in that way, Terry is such a unifying and inspirational figure, and I think very unique. And so when that's who you're talking about, and then you see uh, his image being used to try and make a political statement, you know, whatever the excuse you want to come up with, and I've heard lots of them uh, since this this photo went uh, viral. Um, it, it's just it's just not right. Um, and I've you know people have said, oh well, there's this other photo where he's someone else is trying to use him uh, to make a political statement too. 
that's not right either. I mean, that, that's the point. This is someone who, in my opinion, again, should be left out of politics. It should just, you know, Terry is above that, in my opinion. Uh, and you can make your point, and you can have your opinion, and you can do it without involving him. I think a lot of people would agree with you on that. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much for having me, Simi.